hope you brought your Gatorade. And if you get hungry, you can go get some popcorn because we got a little bit of work to do. I'm going to go ahead and just start reading Mark 13, verse 1. And he came out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what a wonderful building. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so Jesus, he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, and here's our question, and here's where this full chapter is going to be wrapped around this one question. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Listen to some of these warnings. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and, and they will lead me as many astray. And And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Nine, but be on guard. Listen to that warning again. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brothers over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against children and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 14. You still with me? We got a lot of work to do, so you better. But when you see the abomination of desolation, that sounds so terrible, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, For women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that heaven, that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose before the the days He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard. There's another one of those warnings. I have told you all things beforehand 
But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the heavens and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So alas, so also, when you see these things take place, you know that, it, that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's just pray over the reading of God's word this morning. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you that it is life. I pray that your word would read us this morning, God, so that we could see ourselves, so that we could see our sin and our need for our Savior, Lord, so that when we leave this room, we would rejoice and see how great and mighty King Jesus is. In Christ's name we pray, amen. And I have to take a sip of water, so bear with me. That was a lot of reading. All right, let me, let me talk about a couple things. Let's talk about essentials. When I say Christian essentials, what comes to mind? I hope what comes to mind um, are, are the essentials of our faith. Or, or I'm going I'm to show you or teach you a word, what is salvific in nature? What is that essential of our faith? What I mean by that is what Christians believe in, what we have believed for 2,000 years, what has distinctly marked us as believers are these essentials that God is one. There is one true and living God. It is what was taught in the Old Testament. It was continued throughout the New Testament. And the church adopted what the Bible taught, that there is just one God. Now, one in three, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It, that's, we're not going to dive into that today. That's another day. So, so we have one true and living God. And when I talk about essentials, what else comes to mind? Jesus, salvation, right? How am I saved? Well, Ephesians and, and Jesus talks about this. Repent, believe. And this comes about, about a working in our life by grace through faith in Christ. There is no other way to be saved. There are, you can't work your way through it. You can't you know, try to achieve your, you know, have, be more successful, live a good life in order for God to like rain down his blessings upon you. No, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Maybe another essential that comes to mind is the return of Christ. That we believe, so we believe that God is one. We believe that in order to be saved, that you must confess and repent and believe in Jesus Christ. We also believe that Jesus is going to come. He's going to gather his people and we will rule and reign with him for eternity. Now, if, if I were to just kind of lump some the essentials of our faith, I would just categorically just put those in those three, uh, those three categories, right? Notice what was not said. So in Christianity, we have what are essentials. In other words, what binds us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then what we have, uh, what, what is called are the non-essential things. Non-essential things. Um, Non-essentials would be 
what you believe about maybe Calvinism or Arminianism or, or maybe it's your belief of the how of eschatology. We all have a framework of eschatology. What that is is the, the study of the end of either my life or the end of the age or the end of all things. We all know that there's going to be an end. God is going to like just, you know, all of this is going to come to a conclusion where the consummation of the kingdom uh, and, and God's people will happen. But, but the non-essentials takes place in how that's going to take place. Now, I, I, I'm not going to belabor on this point or tell you what all of those things look like. You're sensible people. You can go look those up. But you have, you have ideas that are premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, pre-trib, post-trib, and then you have, you know, different various views of preterist. A preterist believes that the book of Revelation was historical in nature and ought to be read in its history. Or you have kind of a, a hybrid of preterist and futurist. And I know these are like, these are just nerd terms that I love to look up. So just hang with me for just a moment. We'll get into the text. I just have to belabor this point for just a moment. But my point is, is that on the non-essential things, we can have unity because we believe in the essential things. So when we approach a text like this, where many of us think that, well, maybe this is futuristic, maybe this is historical, maybe there's a bit of a, a hybrid of the two. Or uh, you, One of the things that you have to look out to, especially when you start talking about things like this, especially this passage that we just read, are people with dogmatisms. You know what that, that word is, right? Well, it's just gotta be this way. And they get in like such a tizzy about it. And it's not, here we go, salvific in nature. Here's what I would say to you about the people who harp and the people who are dogmatic on the non-essentials of our faith. <laughs> I got a warning for you. Run. They ain't good for you. Stay away from those people. In fact, give them a hug first because they probably need one. And then you go on about your business. People can look at this text and say, well, it's just this way, and it's just going to be this way. What is inerrant is the word of God. What is not inerrant is our interpretations at times. And so with that framework, we approach this text knowing that maybe some of you will not agree with what I say. But what you can agree, hopefully, is that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we are bound together because of the essentials of our faith. With that in mind, I got some work to do. So y'all ready to get into it? You better be because we're going here. This is a passage, if you recall, the gospel of Mark from, I, I believe it was chapter 10 until 14, is circulated around one idea, and that idea is the temple. Jesus comes to the temple. Before he gets to the temple, he curses the fig tree. And the fig tree is that of an emblem or representation of what the temple, God's people have become. And so the framework of the past couple chapters, this chapter within the next one is wrapped around this idea of the temple. The temple was a nationalistic uh, symbol for the people, for the children of Israel. 
So in spite of Jesus's crystal clear judgment of the temple, it's so fascinating. The disciples are just, they're just enthralled at how beautiful and the architecture and how magnificent this glorious temple is. In fact, um, Josephus, if you've never read some of Josephus's work, uh, Josephus, I think I said that right. Some of Josephus's work, I would encourage you, a secular writer, Jewish historian who (laughs) accounted on the resurrection, right? Still not even a believer. um, And he's writing about the temple. And he says this about the temple. Now the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. The sun was no sooner up that it radiated fury of flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from solar rays. It appeared from a distance like a snow-cloud mountain for all that was not overlaid with gold was a purest white limestone. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, five in height. That's 68 uh, feet long, nine feet high, and eight feet wide. In fact, the temple complex, the entire complex, was an estimated 30 plus acres. And so Jesus, this is what Jesus is about to say about the temple. It's healthy on the outside, but it's rot on the inside. It looks fascinating. It blows our minds how beautiful the temple is. And what Jesus is doing here is he is prophesying the historical destruction of the temple. In fact, it wasn't uh, but for 40 years after Jesus died. And we think that was around 30 AD. And so around 40 years after Jesus' death, and there's a lot of significance to that. We'll get into that in just a second. In 70 AD, General Titus comes in and destroys the temple. In fact, I got a picture that to this day, uh, I think there, yeah, there, to this day, there is actual rubble still from the destruction of the second Jewish temple. It's gone. It's not there. Jesus said that the temple is going to be destroyed. And and 40 years later, in 70 AD, a maniac rode through the towns of Jerusalem and desecrated it and, and destroyed it. Now, Jesus is where now? So Jesus moves. Thank you. You can take that off. So now Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives. This is where some of us have probably heard this text as described, the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew 24 and Luke 17, you get this Olivet Discourse. Jesus takes, uh, so this is a few hundred yards away from the temple. It's about 300 feet high. So they're kind of on this, on this little hill or mount looking over. And with the temple in view, they're right in front of the temple. He has James, Peter, John, and Andrew. And his disciples ask him this question. And this question is going to be what we are going to be like focusing the next few weeks on. And the question right here is set up. Everything that we read is an answer to this question. When will these things take place? When will what things take place? The destruction of the temple. When will we see the destruction 
of this temple, when will that take place? So, first of all, it's clear by context that Jesus was literally speaking about a physical temple that was about to be destroyed. And, and we'll get into that in a, in a second. Secondly, there are some eschatological emphasis in this passage to where it is not just a historical thing that took place, neither is it just a futuristic thing that's going to take place, but it is a type that is going to take place, that took place, where an antitype will take place in the end of days. So everything we read about is Jesus' answer to the question. I hope you're still with me. And here is the answer Jesus gives them. The first one, and it's about a mixture of a few warnings that Jesus gives in his answer. And it's so funny because Jesus doesn't say, well, actually, Peter, James, and John, in the year 70 AD, a general by the name of Titus is going to come through the temple, and he's going to bring an army, and he's going to massacre all of you and destroy the temple. That's not what Jesus does. You know, it's like, it's like that's kind of the MO of Jesus, to never give you the direct answer but always give you the answer that makes you feel like, wait, what? he just rebuked me and he gave me the answer? This is kind of Jesus doing. He's giving them some warnings in this. And the first warning he gives in his answer is to what? Watch out. Jesus said, watch out. That what? No one deceives you. Why? Because many will come in and they'll make a claim that I am Jesus. I am the Messiah. Or the claim would be, I am Messiah, I am King. But, but it, and again, if we think about this through a historical lens, we, we know many men did this. Uh, we know that uh, Thaddeus was one of, I believe in the 40s, who would come in and, and rumor had it that he would even perform magic as in signs and wonders. In fact, we know that Barcopa, uh, towards the latter part of the century, came in and again, would claim to be Messiah. And Jesus says to him, the word of warning is to watch out. He says, watch out for these people who come in my name, who will say that they're Messiah, but these are false Christs. And they are in nature anti-Christs. So they are, they are anti-Christ and they are by nature Antichrist. There would be all these would be messiahs in the first century. And then he says, so just, so when you hear of wars, rumors of wars, you got to remember like Twitter wasn't a thing then, right? They didn't have mobile devices. They didn't have the news to turn on. And so like, like we have news, like it seems like we have news before it even happens, right? It's like breaking news, this happens, breaking news, this happens. And it's just like bombarding our phone, but they didn't have this kind of stuff. It could take days, weeks, months for them to get the news of what was taking place. And we know that there were wars taking place there. We know that there were uh, earthquakes. In, fra- in fact, in Phrygia, uh, there was an earthquake around eighty sixty one that destroyed the entire city. And Jesus is saying, listen, when you hear about these types, when you hear about these wars, rumors of war, earthquake, natural disasters, don't think, like, I need you to think, this, 
this is what takes place in a world that is east of Eden, that is a brokenness of sin, and all of this stuff is not the end of things, but it is a sign, and it is the birth of the beginning of birth pains. This analogy of the birth pains of a mother giving birth to a child, I've got to hurry. Oh, a, a time of pain followed by new life and, and had been used for hundreds of years by the Hebrew prophets all throughout the Old Testament to speak about how God was going to usher in a new world. Here's the second warning. And I'll, I'll try to keep these a little quicker here. First warning, watch out. The second warning, what does he say? I need you also to be on guard Jesus is warning his disciples not only about the impending wars, famines, earthquakes, natural disasters, but also the coming persecution. And he looks at his disciples and he tells them, I'm telling you guys this, you will be persecuted. And we know that up millions of Christians, millions of Christians were brutally massacred for the first 300 years. In fact, most, most scholars would say that at least 10% of the population of Rome accounted for Christians. And 10%, most of that 10%, they were all massacred and persecuted. And Christians will go around saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Kairos, Jesus is Yahweh. And, and, and not only just Rome would persecute them, but for the Jews, they were corroborating with the Rome. And so they would see this as like some kind of slap. Time and everything just falls apart. Thanks, Dan. It's all on you, man. And so because this was a, a hyper-nationalistic uh, society, you, like Jesus tells him, he's like, listen, you're going to be persecuted. And the Jews are going to call you out. In fact, they're going to lead you to the synagogue or lead you to the council. And they're going to flog you. And flog you means basically you're going to get beat 39 times, 13 in the chest, 26 on the back. And he's saying from both Rome and Israel, in your darkest moment, when you're on trial, Jesus looks at these disciples and for faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit will be with you. And everything we read here, you can, you can go through the book of Acts and you can see what Jesus said was true. They were persecuted. They were martyred. It's a very dark, violent time of unrest. And Jesus says, I need you guys to stand firm. I need you guys to stay faithful no matter what comes at you. And then look what he does. He, he shifts gears here. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, let the reader understand. Then those let those who are in Judea or Israel flee to the mountains. So this, 
So this line, the abomination that causes desolation is a direct quote from Daniel. You can go back and read Daniel in your own time. Go read it in context, please. It's a prophecy about a pagan, um, just a ruthless king who about the second century BC came in into the temple, desecrated the temple, offered up a pig as a sacrifice. It's kind of a slap to the Jewish people's face because that was, you just didn't do that kind of stuff. And it was just very sacrilegious. And so Jesus is saying that the same thing is gonna take place here. There will be a desolation in the temple. Somebody's gonna come in here and we think that it was actually the Titus guy. The guy who's going to reap a lot of problems in Jerusalem. In fact, he'll go into the temple and he'll make sacrifices to his little gods. And it is a desolation to the temple. And so notice what Jesus tells them. He doesn't tell them, grab your swords, grab your AKs and start fighting. No, what does Jesus say to them? Run for the hills. Leave. Go. Don't stand there. Because this is not the way of the kingdom. We do not fight physical battles that men are raging. Jesus tells him, listen, you're not going to be a part of that mess. You run for the hills. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus is tearing down this type of enigma of nationalism that some of these boys are, I mean, it's, it's birthed heavy into their heart. I'm a Jew, I'm an Israelite, I'm a nationalist, and I will fight for my country. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm telling you, this is just what Jesus is telling his disciples, his followers, what to do when Titus comes in in AD 70. You are not to pick up your sword. It's not a time for fighting. You go for the hills. And there'll be a reason for this. He goes on, I'm going to skip down just a few of these verses here and, and, and watch in verse 18, he says, so pray that this will not take place in winter when the Jordan River was fl- flooded actually. And we know of one story about the war, a group of people were running for cover and, and these Roman guards would find them and just brutally rape them and massacre them. This was just a very disgusting a period of time. In fact, someone wrote about this era of time. Um, this was a Roman historian writing about just the same time in this era. He's not just writing about Israel. He's talking about what's happening in the empire of Rome around the Mediterranean. And the history in which I'm entering, he says this, is that of a period which in disasters, terrible with battles, war torn by civil struggles, Horrible. Even in peace, four emperors fell by the sword. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars on which the war Israel has won, and often both at the same time. Italy, which is a way of saying the Roman Empire, was distressed by disasters unknown before or returning after the lapse of its ages. Now notice the similar language here. Beside the manifold misfortunes that befell mankind, uh, there were prodigies in the sky And on the earth, warnings given, given should be given by thunderbolts and prophecies of the future, both joyful and gloomy, uncertain and clear. Here's the point that you need to know about this, that the first century was a very dark, very evil, wicked, very nasty time. 
to be alive. And then he comes in with the warning number three, be on guard. I've told you everything in advance. Be on guard. You guys still with me? Because I got just a few more things here and we're going to get into some of this meat here. Now, this next part is a slippery slope. And again, I'm giving you this like all in just kind of waterboarding as I hate that analogy, but it's the only thing I could think of kind of waterboarding is with all this context and information. But look what Jesus says in verse 24. In those days, okay, in whose days? In those days, and who is he talking to? Everybody with that? He's looking at his disciples and he looks at them and tells them directly in those days. Right around this time, following this distress. So after the destruction of the temple, after the abomination that causes desolation, after all of that, look what Jesus says. You've got to listen to this and pay attention. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Okay, this is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. It is apocalyptic genre right here, tried and true. Now, what you have to wrestle with, and I leave this to you. I'm not going to tell you which it is. I have my own opinion. That is this literal or is this in, in, and what I would say in literal terms is that we take this in context. So is this literal or is this analogies? And I leave that to you to wrestle with. It, by literal, what I mean is that when we look at the context, and the context is that this is a direct quote from Isaiah 13.10. And some of us may read this and say, oh, look there, there's Israel. There's, there's China versus America. There's World War III. There's all these weird bombs, things taking place. But remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's telling them that this is about to take place, that you, your generation will not pass away until these things take place. And so we have to look at that in context. But what Jesus is doing here, this is a quote from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. It isn't about the end of the full universal world, but Eros, an end of a world or an end of a time or an end of a period in history. It's by way of saying that this destruction of the temple and the end of Jerusalem will be, in today's language, we would say, earth-shattering. Now, now, we on the other side of the world, 2,000 years later, for the most part, we are, we're all Gentiles. Most of us are Gentiles. Maybe some of us are, are Jew here. We're, we're, we're mostly, you know, white people, some Hispanic. Um, I don't know if we have any other nationalities represented here. But we have no idea how important the destruction of the temple would be for the Jewish people in the year AD 70. So in AD 70, the general comes in, destroys the temple, and it's not around today. We don't understand the significance of this. Without a temple, guess what? There's no sacrificial system. Without a temple, there's no priesthood. It's impossible to do it. And so they are, it's almost like when the temple destroyed, it was the end of an era of time for the Israeli people, for the Jewish people. And then Jesus goes on to say, just stay with me just for a few more minutes here. And he says this, at that time, people will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So this is also 
a direct quote from Daniel chapter 7. I'm not going to read it. I can read it on my own time. You can read it on your own time. Now, the Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite words to reference himself. Jesus can talk through third person. This is what he's saying. And if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, just denote that. It's not about the Son of Man coming from heaven to earth. Watch this now. But it's about the Son of Man coming from earth to God. Clouds are symbolic language in the Old Testament. Clouds are symbolic throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Now for theophany or, or an appearance of God, think of Mount Sinai the clouds at the top of the mountain. So Jesus coming on the clouds, we are not to imagine Jesus on a surfboard. Uh, this is not what this is indicating here. That's not, you know, he's saying, listen, when all this comes true, the desolation that causes, the abomination that causes desolation, when the invasion takes place, when the savagery takes place, when the brutality takes place, when the destruction of the temple takes place and no stone left on top of each other. You think, you think that's not going to take place? When all this comes true, Jesus says, Jesus will be seen for who he really is. A rabbi, but more than a rabbi. A messiah, but more than a messiah. The son of man appearing as God himself and at this time, Jesus will gather his elect from true Israel, from the ends of heaven. And Jesus, from this language of Jesus, the ends of the heaven, and, and we're still, we're here, we're around Jesus because we believe he is exactly who he says he was, his vindication. He's not dead, crucified, but he is risen from the grave. This is language Jesus would use that when this takes place, I will be with God and it will be a sign to you that this is the vindication. What they tried to destroy, they tried to destroy me. But when you see the abomination, when you see the desecration and the desolation of the temple, you lift up your eyes because they will know that I'm not just a rabbi, that I'm not dead in the grave, but I am the son of man. He is God. How do we know this is true? <laughs> because Jesus said that he's ruling and reigning, that all authority has been given unto him. And his rule and reign is not some futuristic thing. I'm almost done. Verse 28, learn this from the fig tree. As soon as it twigs, gets tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near even. So when you see these things happening, you know that it is right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So remember, Jesus is at the top of the Mount of Olives, which is covered in fig trees. And so around Passover time, it's just starting to come out with all the fig trees. And Jesus' analogy is pretty fitting, and it draws, back, draws us back to the, the fig tree analogy, not necessarily an analogy, but he actually cursed the tree and it stopped bearing fruit. And he points them back to this idea that this temple, these people have rejected me. 
And because of their rejection, I will re- I will dis- there will be an end of their time. It'll be no more. And so it'll be an end of an eros, a period of time. But is that the end? No. Because there's a new end. There's a new beginning. And where did that beginning start? The church. The church. Listen to what he says. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is an, what we call an idiom. It was a Jewish idiom for the temple. Most scholars would say that when you say heaven and earth, it was an idiom for the temple. So when they heard heaven and earth, their minds and their eyes would turn to the temple. So Jesus is essentially saying that this temple will pass away. This temple will be destroyed. This temple will be no more. But what remains? His word. Now, I, I love this in, in just a few closing things here, and I'll, I'll give us some application here if I can, because I think there's some things in here that can help us. And I'm so proud of you for sticking with that long introduction, right? But you're, you're just, just hang with me like five more minutes, maybe. That's a lie. We'll see. Jesus doesn't say, he looks at these disciples and he doesn't say, you know, the question, the question. What's the question? When, when, will, when will these things take place? Notice how Jesus answers. He answers in 31 long verses. This will happen. This will happen. Watch out for this. Be mindful of this. Be aware of this. Watch out because persecution's coming. And Jesus could have easily helped us and gave us, hey, 70 AD, wicked dude's going to come through, ravage the temple, run for the hills. But Jesus doesn't do that. He does not give them this idea. Instead, he's telling them the kind of stuff that will happen in the near future. But watch this. His focus is on the kind of people that his disciples are to become. You catch that? He doesn't give them a direct answer per se. What does he do? He's equipping his disciples. And he's given them a vision of, here's the kind of men and women that I want you to become. And what is that? I want you to be marked as being watchful. I want you to be marked as being on guard. And I want you to watch out for all of this. It's a people of expectation. And Jesus' words would ring so clear to us today that when he's looking at his disciples, that these words are ringing true to us, aren't they? That I want you to be a people who are expectant, that you're on guard, that you're watching out, that you're looking out for people around you. And my people, my disciples, my church will be marked by this, that they're expectant and they're expecting Christ to reign because he is. One one little closing thought, and I'll pray, and I hope You remember how we started this thing that Jesus died, rose again from the grave. Jesus is God. The the way Jesus is, 
the way to salvation is through grace, through faith in Christ alone. Jesus is ruling now. Jesus is coming again. And so what I want you to know that you'll keep in mind as we, be, as we study really deep in chapter 13, before you go and throw your hands up in despair and be like, I have no idea what just happened. I have no idea what this chapter is talking about. Desolation, that sounds like a, um, a, a Lord of the Rings movie. Like, what are, we, what are we talking about? The desolation of Smog or Mog, whatever his name is. Like, what, what are we talking about here? Like, I don't want you to like be that guy that's like, well, I just, you know, I'm, I just, I got to throw my hands up because I have no idea what you're talking about. Listen, Jesus is providing to them immediate context of Judea and Jerusalem and to equip his followers in every age in relationship to the prospect of that which will be at the end of age. So whatever we do with this, we walk away and we, we walk away with this passage, what we ought to say collectively is that we're watching, we're waiting, we're hoping, we're expectant that when you read any prophecy, when you read any eschatological passage, your heart should rejoice and say, we're watching, we're waiting, we're anticipating, we're mindful, we're hopeful. And we're expectant. That's what our heart should say. At the epicenter of all of this, one day Christ will come and he will appear. And the things that we see only dimly now will appear to us and become very apparent to us. Now, this final desecration of the temple and this great final distress at the end of the age, they actually coalesce with each other. In one sense, it's all history, but then in another sense, it is an antitype of what is to come. In other words, what you have in the destruction, and I know some of my eschatological people have been like waiting for me to say this, what you have here in the destruction of the temple is foreshadowing of that which will ultimately be the case. What you have here that we just went and spent 40 minutes talking about is a historical event that took place, but it is also an antitype of what is to happen at the end of the full cosmos, of the full age. Now, we, we walk away from any eschatology, any end time study, and, and we are not... Um, defeated, right? We are not, um, I, I, you know, like, I don't want to say fearful, but you know, like, like when some people talk about eschatology, it's just like you get a sense that one, they need a hug, maybe a drink, we'll see. Uh, but, but you get a sense that it's just so like, are you serving the right Jesus? Jesus is king right now. Some of us approach end time stuff and we just think, oh, it's just doom and gloom and the, the world's just melting around us. Honey, read your Bible. Jesus is the king of the universe. And he didn't go in and say, oh, except for America. Those jokers are just, 
They're, they're vile and wicked. I mean, just look at Facebook, particularly Matthew Thrower's post. You follow him. You, you think that, that he's a bigot and, you know, one of those bad people. I'm going to stop right there. But like, like Jesus isn't like wringing his hands and going, oh, my me, what's going on in the world? He's ruling and reigning. So act like it. Satan is not the king of the earth. You can pretend he is and you can say he is, but you're wrong. Jesus is king because all authority has been given to him. And so when I approach eschatology, and I'm done, I promise, I'm almost done. When I approach this topic, we win. You can be defeated if you want to, but you in the wrong army. When I read Psalm 110, got to go back there, and Jesus quotes Psalm 110, that every enemy will be at his feet. That tells me we win. So stop like walking around as a defeatist, as like, oh no, these bad things are going to happen to me. No, honey, we win. It's the Bible. Jesus is king. He's ruling and reigning right now. And so with that, I am done, but I've got so much more to say. We'll just pause and look at the end of age, the eschatology portion of this in the next few weeks. (laughs) 